be a problem. So we're in James chapter 1, and we're studying this from the perspective of James being the younger brother of Jesus and having found out that his big brother was God later in life. Last week, we talked about attitude, wisdom, and enduring trials, and those words will continue through the study. And we talked about the steps that the natural outgrowth of salvation growing, the Bible says, make every effort add to your faith. And those are the stepping stones of growth. James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When will that person receive the crown of life? In heaven, at the judgment seat, right at the rapture. So there will be five crowns. We're not going to study the five crowns today, but five always stands for the number for grace. And in the bottom right, you see the crown of life. We'll expand that a little bit because there are two verses in Scripture that refer to the crown of life. The one that we just read, the crown of life for those that love him, and the crown of life for those that have suffered for the name of Christ. So how do those two tie together? Look at the very top verse of James 1:12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Now, the news for me, I didn't know if it was good news or bad news. The news for me is I don't live in places like China or Afghanistan. So the trials that I have are very different than the trials people have in the countries where there are persecutions. So that's a blessing. Many, many times I said, I'm so blessed to be born into this slice of history and geography. And you are too. But that does not mean that you are ineligible for that particular crown. You love the Lord, you deal with the trials that he puts in front of you, and you'll receive a crown of life. If you want to get into those as a study, let me know, and we can uh, do a little detour from James. But let's continue on. There's that same verse. And we're going to come up and define trial versus temptation. Because the next verse talks about Jesus or God not tempting anybody. A trial brings pressure from without. A temptation shows the traitor that is within. And so we're not going to ask the question, if these things come, you might as well count on when these things come. When trials come into your life, when you get tempted, uh, tempted, when you get tempted, and if we're prepared for them, we can deal with them. Ephesians talks about putting on the whole armor of God. So temptations versus trials. When, <clears throat> when God said to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, up to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him, that was not a temptation. That was a trial. You say, well, he tempted him to kill his son. This is a fine line here. And we're going to come to a, a bottom line very, very shortly. 
But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So we use the phrase, we have a verse in scripture, we have a high priest tempted as we are yet without sin. So Jesus was tempted, and if you go back to that definition, uh, where do those temptations come from? From within. You say, well, how could Jesus have that from within? He was born with a sin nature, yet without sin. So, how was Jesus tempted? Help me, how was Jesus tempted? First, if you're the Son of God, turn these rocks into bread. Second, You see all these uh, nations before you, bow down before me. Third, jump down from the pinnacle of the temple and your father's going to take good care of you. Now, 1 John talks about three things. It says, all these are the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh... Turn these rocks into bread. You think Jesus was hungry that day? How long had he not eaten? Forty days. John and I had a special project yesterday. I didn't put a thing in my mouth until 10 p.m. And I didn't even taste it. It just went right past the mouth hole and right down into the belly. The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eyes. Look here at all these nations. If you just bow down before me, I'll give you all these nations. The lust of the eyes. Look. And then the pride of life. God's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of my life. The three things that tempted Jesus are the same three things that tempt us. They're the same three things that tempted Eve, but we're going to skip Eve and move to the next topic. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. I had to throw the King James up there because that's just one of those verses that it's, it's just second nature. When lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. You say, well, and we're going to dive into that in more detail. So you see up here in the purple, here's God. And he tests us, and based upon our reaction, we can receive a crown of life. And we can receive Christian growth. We talked about uh, the first few verses of James that said that, Blessed is the man who endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. It also talks about receiving patience. And last week we talked about don't. Don't pray for patience as a, maybe just a wrong thing to do because you can receive it in a positive fashion and a negative fashion. But here you see lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, and that, lead, that is a, a solicitation to evil. That's a temptation. This is a trial. It leads to the desire, sin, and death. Now, there's a controversy in Christendom that's gone on for a couple of hundred years You can lose your salvation, you can't lose your salvation. So 
there are, very, there are a lot of verses that make it crystal clear to me. For example, Romans 8, 1, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. When that talks about death, based on the way I behave myself, based on the sin, lust, sin, death, it can bring death to a trust. Let's say Willie believes that I never lie. And then I tell a, a big one, and he's going to have a problem trusting me anymore. It could ruin relationships. Again, if I do something really egregious, Sean may never talk to me ever again. Sin can destroy marriages. That's a very, very popular in, in the numbers these days. Over 50% of the marriages end in divorce. I looked this up, not for this class, but for a different conversation. What do you think the divorce rate is for Major League Baseball players? 89%. You figure they play 162 games if they don't make the playoffs, and about half of them are away. So you got <clears throat> 80 nights... Out of 360 nights, that's one-fourth. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. You can not only destroy a marriage, you can destroy a family. You can destroy, you can bring death to your body. So what does the phrase sin unto death mean? That's death to the body, right? A sin unto death. A person could look and say, you have sinned so horribly that you've lost your salvation. Again, James will tell us later on that if you're guilty of a portion of the law, you're guilty of the whole, whole law. So if I'm guilty and guilty of everything every day, then this cannot mean that I sin so badly I'm going to hell. What this verse means, the sin unto death, means you have sinned so badly, or there's just nothing left that you can contribute that God's just going to take you out. Can you think of any examples in Scripture of the sin unto death? How about Moses? He struck the rock. It was a breach of faith. He was told to strike the rock the first time, Jesus like, just like Jesus was struck on the Mount of Calvary. And then once Jesus died, speak to the rock. New Testament says that rock is Jesus. There's a song about that, that rock is Jesus. So Moses committed a sin, that which is not a faith is sin. So what was his punishment? It's an easy one, come on. Couldn't enter the promised land. That's exactly right. And in fact, right on the eve before they did, he got on top of the mountain. He said, oh God, just please let me go in there. And God said, don't even pray about it. How about these folks? What did they do? In Acts chapter 5. They lied. They said, Mom and dad, they said, let's sell the farm and give the money to the church. And at that time, a lot of people were doing that. So they said, that's a great idea. We sold the farm, and we're going to give the money to the church. And the farm went for a couple million, and uh, they're looking at this money, and they're saying, well, 
let's keep some for ourselves. Which is fine, right? If you sell your farm, it's, it's your cash. You can do whatever you want to with it. <laughs> so they took the money and gave it to Peter. And Peter said, hey, that's pretty cool. Did you sell, let's say they sold it for two million and they gave uh, 1.5. Did you sell your farm for 1.5? Ananias says, yep. Down he goes. A sin unto death. They pick them up and carry them out. Mrs. Ananias comes in and Peter says, wow, 1.5 million, that, you got a good price. And she said, yep, boom, down she went. A sin unto death. So lust, when it hath conceived, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. So to contrast trial versus temptation, God is too good to be cruel, too wise to err, and too deep to explain. So let me ask you this. There are certain things that God is kind of deficient. What can you see that God cannot see? My equal. What can God not know? He doesn't know anybody he can't save. And you can sit there and say, well, what about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not words. I could say all day long, God is poopy caca or whatever. That is not the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is at the last time you have been offered salvation, you say, no, thank you. The Bible says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Holy Spirit draw him. So if the Holy Spirit is drawing this person, and on the last time he says, no, thank you, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The only unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus Christ as your Savior. So if you've been saved, don't sit there and say, can I commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No, you're past that. So I think it was Tozer that said, God will hurt us, but not harm us. My first pastor told the story of a, a farmer, a shepherd, who had this sheep that was the renegade. Now, it wasn't the one where the 99 stayed and the one left. It was the leader sheep. You've had leader sheep, right? The one goes and the others all follow. Well, this shepherd loved this sheep. This shepherd was not fattening that one up for market. This shepherd really wanted that sheep. So he took this sheep, this sheep he broke its leg, he splinted it, he nursed it, he brought it back to full health, and that sheep never ran off ever again. All we like sheep have gone astray. Jesus can break your leg, but he can fix it again. He can hurt us, but he won't harm us. And we'll be getting the Romans 8.28 shortly. Don't pray for patience. We covered this. The end game, a crown of life for those who love him. So now we're up to, 
I can't read the little thing, verse 16, I guess. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change with shifting shadows. So, what is the best gift you ever got? Don't say my wedding ring. What is the best gift you ever got? Romans 6.23. Salvation. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the second best gift? See, he took the easy one. What's the second best gift you ever got? Don't say my engagement ring. Upon salvation, we each receive certain spiritual gifts, and it's our job to nurture those gifts and to use them. We've also received the indwelling and the seal of the Holy Spirit. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until the day of redemption. I've not only been given uh, the gift of eternal life, I've given the preservation of eternal life, because eternal by definition means never-ending. So the other portion in the next best gifts is when Jesus saved me he didn't make me perfect he didn't make me sinless now I use that word perfect the way in our world we think of the world perfect it means absolutely nothing is wrong when we read about perfect in the in the Bible it talks about maturity the Bible says that Job was a perfect man and we're going to see a quote from Job shortly, but by the, by the end of the book of Job, he's talking, he's confessing that he said way too many things. He was not perfect. He was certainly mature. And so in the growth, and I'm not going back to Second Peter's stair steps, in the growth, we fall, we fail, we hit ruts, we hit dry periods, we get desert experiences. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What if some gifts don't seem all that great? We just read every perfect gift cometh from the Father. Here we see John 3. Jesus replied, a person can receive only what is given him from heaven. It doesn't say a person can only receive the good things and those good things also come from heaven. The bad things come too. We use a word luck. There's no luck in the life of a Christian. We use the word coincidence. There's no coincidence. We use the word wish. I wish you have a good day. That, that's meaningless because now if I said, I pray that you have a good day, that's commitment. I need to be praying that you have a good day if I said that and I meant it, right? Job said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Mrs. Job, she was the one who sinned with her, with her mouth. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? Job looked the Lord gave, and the devil took it away? No. The Lord gave, and the Lord took it away. The Lord gave permission for those things to happen to him. He lost his family. He lost his, his wealth. He lost his friends. 
I don't know, you know, at the end they talk about him having uh, more kids and this and that. It doesn't say from the same woman. I don't know what happened to Mrs. Job. But she walked away also. Her, his relatives walked away. Mrs. Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Romans. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God did not promise us a rose garden. But all things work together for good. This is back to that notion of trials. One pastor I knew always gave an example. What if it came to breakfast and the only thing that was there was raw eggs? What if it came to breakfast and the only thing that you're being offered was vinegar? What if it came to breakfast and the only thing you were offered were salt, flour, cocoa dust? You wouldn't eat any of those. But if you put them all together, that becomes the recipe for a fine chocolate cake. All things work together for good to those that love God. I don't want to chug that vinegar, but I'm sure looking forward to a slice of chocolate cake. How do I get to the cake? It all depends on our attitudes. That's why we're studying attitudes, wisdom, and trials. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we, we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So you can scratch your head and say, what does he mean? We might be a kind of first fruits. What is a first fruit? Well, I have a tiny orchard. Six trees, so you might not call it an orchard. And I go out every day and I weed the garden and I look around and there was a peach on the ground. And I picked it up and this side had a hole and that side looked just right. And I bit into that peach and it was so, so sweet. What do you think happened in the next two weeks? I got a lot of sweet peaches. But that was the first fruit. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the first fruit of those that have fallen asleep. Now, there were a number of people that were raised from the dead, but Jesus is the first who was raised in the glorified body. But James says, we are a kind of first fruits. Now, who is the original audience of the book of James? James, a servant of God and of Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, greeting. Who was it written to? Come on, Hebrews, the Israelites. So here's Romans. I'm not ashamed of the glorious gospel of God, which is the power of salvation to all that believe, to the Jew first, first fruits, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile, also to the Greek. The Jews had the blessing of the scriptures, the Torah, they had the blessings of the promise that the bloodline is going to go all the way to Jesus. They had the Abrahamic covenant. They had the Abrahamic promise, I'll bless those that bless thee, I'll curse those that curse thee. Another promise to Abraham was that all nations would be, would be blessed. We're studying the book of Jonah, which is a, a, an example of a Jewish prophet going out and speaking to Gentiles. So the salvation came to the Jew first. But now... Who's the next audience of James? 
It's us. So what about me? How can I be a kind of a first fruit? You say, well, half of you have got an ant eating in you. That's not the answer. What, what could make me a first fruit? Soul winning. Soul winning. Now, some people have an impression that soul winning means to go down there in front of Wally's and hand out tracks. That, that's a form of soul winning because they've got this big sign that says no solicitation, you're probably going to have a, a short visit. Soul winning is as simple as, and I've been geeking this, have a blessed day. And I'm even changing the way I say it. I raise the tone blessed and I pa a micro pause before the word day. Have a blessed day. Except for one man, and he and I are going to have coffee shortly, Except for one man, people have appreciated that phrase. I was on the phone with this guy. I said, have a blessed day. And his response was, ha ha. I'll have an opportunity to engage in conversation. That's soul winning. I may never see somebody saved. I'll tell you that one day this week, it was Tuesday, I saw somebody saved. It was my wife's cousin's housekeeper. And the wife's cousin was sewing and sewing and sewing, not on a machine, but S-O-W, sewing. And I came over with my chainsaw to take out a few limbs. And there are the three of us. I'm getting ready to climb a ladder. And she says to the, to the housekeeper, would you like to be saved? She said, well, yeah. I came right back down that ladder. And we had a conversation, and that lady was saved. But now, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the apostles went over there to Wawa to get some hoagies. The lady gets saved, goes into town. They may have gone like this. And Jesus explains to them, they brought him his hoagie, and he said, I have meat to eat that you know not of. And then he described, and he said, one man sows, and another man reaps so that the two can rejoice together. I led that cousin to Christ about four months ago. She wasn't a seasoned Christian, but all she was telling the housekeeper was, you can't believe the joy that I have in Jesus Christ. Just like the woman at the well. Come see a man which told me all things whichever I did. Is this not the Christ? We can be a first fruit. And so James says, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. He chose to see me born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. I didn't know, I didn't, that phrase didn't register into my brain until Jimmy Carter, as president, said that he was born again. Now that was seven years before I got saved. But these things register. G Jimmy Carter talked about being born again. And I was just one person on the radio or the television, I couldn't tell you which media, but hundreds of millions of people heard him say that. He also said he was guilty of adultery because of that verse, if you look at a woman and lust after her, you're guilty of, you're guilty of adultery. People didn't understand that one. But even though the reviews on his presidency were mixed, he was a soul winner.
So that's the, what about, I say me, but I should be asking, what about us? My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And I will tell you, we could spend an entire verse, an entire chapter, entire class, and not even scratch the surface of these verses. What are your ideas on quick to listen? I mean, the, the speed of sound is constant. I speak, you listen. If you're down there and if there's enough volume, it can go there a little bit later. What does that mean, quick to listen? Understand, okay. Well, you're, what you're saying is listen really means to understand. What about that word quick? Quick to listen. That means to be ready to understand. Be open to understand. Be patient to let that person say what he needs to say. Now, the next phrase is going to talk about quick to, or slow to speak. But ideas on quick to listen? Let me see if this is an emergency. And it's not. Ideas on quick to, set aside my agenda. And this typically happens when the conversation is heated. All right? There are three things that are inside communication. First, the words themselves. Second, the tone. And third, the actions. Let's say Jenny and I are having a big monster fight. And I walk out the door. And, well, I walk out, I'm going towards the door, to, and she says, where are you going? Now, what I heard was, I'm getting in the last word. That's because her tone was, where are you going? The words were, where are you going? No actions yet. But when I get to the door, I'm saying, I'm going for a walk, and I slam the door behind myself. The words were, I'm going for a walk. The tone was, drop dead. And the slam the door was, I might come back. So quick to listen is to set aside my agenda, especially in an argument. And quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Set aside my emotions. And we just talked about that with tone and actions. Set aside my preconceived ideas or notions. I've said, I sat under that first pastor for six months, and he went from the dumbest, dumber than a fence post and the wisest man I ever knew. I had to set aside my own notions. And don't just physically hear the spoken word or read the written word, but receive and consider them. That's what Les was saying. The tongue in James, slow to speak. Now, my assumption is James got saved later in life. Jesus was 33, James could have been 31, he could have been 30, we don't know. 
but every chapter in James deals with some facet of the tongue. Chapter 1 is slow to speak. Chapter 2, speak and act. Remember what I said? The words, the tone, the actions. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you had a choice between mercy and judgment, which one would you pick? Well, I'll pick mercy. I don't know about you guys. If I had a choice between mercy and judgment, I'd pick mercy. Chapter 3, but no man, no human being can tame the tongue. And that's the tongue chapter, and it's also the tongue and the wisdom chapter. Chapter 4, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Chapter 5, do not swear. And I can picture James, before he was a believer, to be a slanderer, to be a swearer. John, John chapter 7 says, yeah, James is talking to his big brother. He says, eh, if, you're, if you think you're the Messiah, go on down to Jerusalem and share your wealth with all these other people. And again, the Bible says, for his brothers did not believe him. James has taken all of his life's experiences, and I share my life's experiences. We're all product of those things. He is sharing his life experiences inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, slow to become angry. Who's heard the phrase, count to ten? Let me see some hands. I have a head, I have a hand, okay. Count to ten. Uh, Peter said, I've already forgiven him seven times. And Jesus said, well, how about seven times 70? Uh, how about if I'm angry, instead of just counting to 10, I count to 10 times 10 to borrow that, uh, that phrase. Who's that guy? Harry Truman. Harry Truman, that's exactly right. His official name is Harry, Harry S. Truman. What does the S stand for? It doesn't stand for anything. He just put it on some piece of paper and it just continues on. Go ahead and look it up. But Harry Truman, he's famous for the phrase, the buck stops here, as opposed to the phrase we give to Congress, kicking the can down the road. He said the buck stops here. He was also responsible for ending this, the uh, World War II with a huge decision to drop those bombs. But here's a facet of Harry Truman you did not know. Any letter that, or memo, they didn't have emails, any letter that he had written that had an angry tone, he, his practice was to not send that out for 24 hours. Now that's the epitome of counting the 10. But it said at the end of his tenure, there was an entire file filled with unsent mail. What happened to him in, this, in those 24 hours? He changed his mind. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. So how about us and the send command on email or the post command on Facebook? Sometimes I don't even bother reading for the spelling, let alone think about the tone that's in that email. And we're going to stop there. I'm six minutes early, so sorry. I can pick up my scripture and continue on. We can pause and do questions and answers. What's your pleasure? John, uh, I've got to go back to something you said early on. And the fact that Jesus had a sin nature but didn't sin. I've never got that before. 
Well, if Jesus did not have a sin nature, he couldn't have died. He had sin inside of him because the physical death comes because of sin. He had a sin nature because it came through Mary, and he had a God nature, which meant he would defeat it every time it bubbled up. Somebody else? Someone would say he didn't have a sin nature because sin comes through the man. He was human. He died. He got sick. He was, he was 100% man. Somebody else? Okay, let me get my Bible. Quick to hear, slow to wrath, for on verse 20, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. When Moses struck that rock, he was not showing off the righteousness of God. He was simply striking that rock. Was he angry with God? No, he was angry with the people. If you read the passage, he was angry with the people and he rebroke the, pu- the people. And when he was smacking that rock, I think he was smacking the people by proxy. He said, I want to give those people some hot butt. And he gave it to the rock instead. And what did he lose out on because of that transaction? He lost out on going into the promised land. Moses lived 120 years. He spent the first 40 years learning that he was something. You read Acts chapter 7, and Stephen said that he learned all of the stuff all of the engineering, all of the math, all of the medicine. He learned everything that Egypt can offer. He all, uh, Stephen also said that he was mighty in word and in deed. He spent the second 40 years learning that he was nothing on the backside of the desert. He spent the last 30 years experiencing that God can do something with nothing. Wonderful man. But was he immune from anger? No. If I go and throw a fit in the store, and somebody in that store knows John is the Sunday school teacher, have I worked the righteousness of God? No. See, I told you, he's just another one of those hypocrites. Slow to anger. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, if you could just lay aside your superfluity of naughtiness, you'd be in great shape, right? What does that word superfluity mean? Overflowing. Super meaning over and flow meaning, you know, flowing. I bet it's been a long time since you've been called naughty. (laughs) Superfluity of naughty, that's evil. If you're overflowing with evil... Lay that stuff aside. Now, it's not just carrying on inside of some store. It's what I'm thinking about when my head hits the pillow. It's what I'm thinking about when I have some idle time. You know, this is not Bible, but you heard the phrase that idleness is the devil's workshop. Lay that stuff aside with meekness and the engrafted word. With meekness, with humility. Set that stuff aside. Moses was the most 
King James says king, NIV says, uh, King James says meek, NIV says humble. He was the meekest or the humblest man that ever was. Yet he was not immune to sin. Lay aside my pride. I'm right and you're wrong. Lay aside my pride, but receive the engrafted word. We were, Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath, the Bible says, even as others. But God took away that old stuff, or he at least he gives us the instrument to give it away. The Bible says if a man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away or are passing away. All things are becoming new. Now, that doesn't mean we no longer have a battle. Paul wrote in Galatians, he said, the spirit lusts after the flesh and the flesh after the spirit so that you, you cannot do the things that you would. He said in Romans chapter 7, he says, the things I want to do, I don't get to do them, and the things that I do should be doing, I don't do. Oh, what a miserable man I am. And then the punchline is in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Wilmer, it's good to see you, and I was just getting ready to quit. You got any questions? <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you, man. Class is dismissed. I'm going to go shake that man's hand. <laughs>